Thank you. Hello. Thank you, everybody. Hello. Good to see you. Thank you for having me once again. Every single time feels like a blessing, even in the 10th week. We've been through a lot these past nine weeks. We've gone into depth about nine different midot, each of which can be isolated and worked on, but also directly and indirectly interact with one another. We'll aim to revisit some of these, some of these midot later, as well as open up the conversation for which, uh, for which of these midot perhaps speaks most to you and which you would like to work on going forward as we, as, uh, you know, as, as we move on in some ways. Um, until then, we're going to cover a fundamental concept in Musar and one which we have indirectly discussed in the past. The truth is we could have covered this during one of our first sessions, but in lieu of explicitly bringing in this concept, the concept of Bechira, of choice, we spoke about the power of small actions, of Ma'asim Ketanim, and how we work slowly at developing Nidot as to not alert that radar, right? Or whatever is aroused to resist any change in the status quo. The concept of Bechira, which we're gonna focus on, applies not just to Musar, and how we make change and feel comfortable where we are in a given moment on our path, it can also help us develop a sensitivity towards others. It could change the way we interact with our students and our employees. It can fundamentally change the way we treat people who commit crimes, for example. Rav Dessler of Eliyahu Dessler, some of whose teachings we've studied together, including the teaching that to be in God's image means to be, to be a loving and kind giver, a giver who acts with chesed. He presents another critical idea in his work, Michtav Eliyahu, the letter from Eliyahu, Eliyahu being Rav Eliyahu Desler. This concept is called the Nikudat Habichira, Nikudat Habichira, literally the Bechira point or the choice point. What is this Nikudat Habichira, this choice point? It is a point where what we know to be true, deep down, what we know to be right, and that is driven by our yetzer hatov, our what's called a good or positive inclination. It's where that knowledge of what's good and right comes up against our temptations and our appetites driven by what we, we can call the yetzer hara, this evil, this bad inclination. And it's a struggle. At this point, it's a struggle to let the true and correct prevail. In this scenario, there are two opposing forces, two opposing forces of equal strength. And the person feels the internal conflict, it makes a conscious effort. And that's where our growth um, and development happens. When we, when we consciously choose to choose, when we choose, when we make a decision to choose one or the other, that's where growth and development happens. Do we know where these points are for ourselves with regard to the midot we've studied? Do we know when we sort of, we know the chesed we really should be performing. We know we should be performing chesed, but for one reason or another, we resist doing it or we know we should express gratitude, but something is holding us back. These moments, these are the moments for Bechira, for letting our sense of what's right win out. It often takes some thinking and reflecting to identify these moments, but when we do, we're able to act in ways that help us grow. The assumption, the assumption with the Bechira point is that we have free choice. Bechira chofshit, or Bechira chofshit, some will call it. Free choice, and there are different ways free choice is approached in the tradition and Jewish law and common questions we might ask today were asked generations ago. The positions have ranged from, we have complete free will to choose right and wrong. And that's why there's reward and punishment to a modified form of free will where 
We have free will, but we're heavily influenced by our brains and our surroundings. We choose what we do or don't do, but our desire to do or don't do these things, that's programmed in a sense. And then on the other end, we have that God controls everything, 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 everything. And, and we don't truly have free will. It's all an illusion. Those are a few different positions about free will. Any student of psychology and likely anyone who has ever encountered an infant or watch a child grow will know that we aren't born as blank slates. We are born with certain tendencies, personality traits, inclinations, what have you. Development psychology, this is um, uh, Jonathan Haidt, Professor Jonathan Haidt says, uh, who's an amazing professor and teacher, The Righteous Mind, great book, Happiness Hypothesis, I recommend checking it out. He's, he writes that, the, that development, developmental psychology has shown that kids come into the world already knowing so much about the physical and social worlds and programmed to make it really easy for them to learn certain things and hard to learn others. He explains that we're given this first draft, that we're all born with a first draft, none of which are exactly alike. So there's room as we grow older and mature to revise this first draft, but there's no denying that when we enter the world, in a certain way, that biases our behavior or attitudes in one way or another. The Talmud, the, uh, the collection of oral teachings of Jewish law and lore, understands this. And it says that we, we can both make active choices and that we're products of nature. Rather than sublimating or rejecting this potentially dangerous or negative tendencies once born with, the Talmud suggests that we redirect our negative tendencies instead. So in the tractate uh, dealing with Shabbat, the, the, the Talmud says that one who is born under Mars, under the astrological Mars, will be a bloodshedder. And then another rabbi, Rabbi Ashi, he said that this person may be a surgeon, a thief, a butcher, or a moho, like a, a circum, uh, someone who circumcises babies. What a suggestion. Like Haidt said, like Jonathan Haidt said, there are factors in the Talmud's case, astrology, that set for us a first draft. This draft might include anger or hot-headedness that would lead to a certain sort of bloodshed. This person left to their own devices and without any guidance or support might go down a dangerous path, perhaps in the direction of bloodshedding violence. One could imagine the Talmud saying that we should train this person to calm their anger or have them to do, have them do teshuva and become a calm person. The Talmud tells us, though, to accept and work with this innate personality trait. I honestly don't know what's better, but I do know that trying to fit, what you say, trying to fit someone a round peg into a square pole, a square hole, excuse me, can be a recipe for disaster. So maybe there's some truth to accepting and, cha and channeling instead of repressing or rejecting. Rav Ashi says that bloodshedding, though a negative trait, can be harnessed for the good. Let's find this person the right job. Let's find them the right work. Something that involves blood because they're connected to bloodshed in some way. It was astrologically determined, but, it's, but, but, but let's, let's put them in a mitzvah context, right? Where, we can, where they can bring some good into the world. A surgeon deals with blood, right? Deals with blood, but it's for a holy purpose. Somebody who's a mohel, who, who circumcises babies, there's blood there too. But again, it's a holy purpose. In Rav Ashi's world, we can't choose who we are, but we can take the rough sides of who we are and apply them towards the good. For our purposes, we will continue in the, in the thinking from last week, the, the line of thinking from Bitachon, that ultimately we control our efforts, but not our outcomes, and that there's some arc of the universe 
that really is out of our hands. But if there is this greater arc that we find ourselves on, are we really free to act as we wish? Do we even control the wish or drive to act in a certain way? The Talmud, again, in the, in the, in the tractate dealing with Shabbat, explains an interesting thing by looking at the Aleph Bet. We're not going to look at this whole text, but it looks at the shapes of, of the Aleph Bet and, and for all the different letters and explains sort of what we can learn from each, from each letter. And by looking at the Kuf, the letter Kuf in the Resh, it suggests that it's in our hands to choose the righteous path or the less righteous path. And God is not going to stop us either way. In fact, the Talmud says God provides an opportunity for us to choose either one, presumably an equal opportunity. And by looking at the shape, it, it looks at Kuf and Resh. And so Kuf represents Kadosh, the holy ones. Resh represents Rasha, the evil ones. And it notices that there's a gap. There's a gap between the Kuf and the Resh. If you notice that the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the leg of the Kuf is not connected to the top not connected to the top. And, and so the answer given for why is that leg of the kuf not connected to the top? And the answer is, is because the resh, the rasha, needs an access point to become kadosh. And so that's, that's where it enters that little, um, that little space there. And then, and then it debates, you know, well, what about this gap at the bottom of the kuf? And ultimately it says, the Talmud says that one who comes in order to become pure, meaning they, they, they want to sin, that God actually provides them with an opening to do that. There's this open channel here between Kadosh and Rasha. There's an open channel, right? God is giving opportunity. You can become Rasha, you can become evil. And this person is not pre prevented from doing that. But if they come in order to become purified, if they come from the Resh to the Kuf, then not only is the person able to do so, but God is going to push them. God is going to push them to do so. The ability to choose right from wrong is, according to tradition, one of the things which makes us most human, it makes us most human. And Rambam explains this in the laws of Teshuvah. Again, we're not going to read all of these in full, but he writes, every person was endowed with free will. If one wants to bend themselves towards the good path and to be just, it's within their power of one's hand to reach out for it. And if one desires to bend oneself, let's go back. And if one desires to bend oneself to a bad path and to be wicked, it's within their power to do that too. And then he says, and where I wrote, where I highlighted in yellow here, every person is capable of being as just as Moses, our master, our teacher, or as wicked as Jeroboam, Yeroboam, wise or inkani, I guess that's the word, merciful or human, miser or philanthropist. And so in all other tendencies, there is none to either force things upon him, upon them, or to decree things against them, either to pull them one way or draw them another way. But that person alone of their own free will, with the consent of their mind, bends to any path they may desire to follow. According to Rambam, Maimonides, the choice is ours. Do we want to be righteous like Moses or evil like Jeroboam? Nothing can get in our way, he says. Of course, anyone who's ever made a poor decision or who is struggling to make a change, uh, who's struggling to make a change in some way, knows that having free will or free reign isn't always empowering. If someone says, you can do it, that's not necessarily very comforting, right? It can lead to feelings of guilt when a person doesn't succeed. After all, I have this power to make decisions, to change my life around and to improve my relationships and myself, to pray more. And yet I can't, or I don't feel like it. I don't feel like I can make the effort to successfully do so. There must be something wrong with me. To the same extent that we can blame ourselves when we, when we feel we fall short, 
of our own or other standards for behavior and success, others often judge us as well. You made your bed, now sleep in it. You're not trying hard enough, right? If you really, really wanted it, you do something about it. The notion of complete free will, empowering as it might be, can lead to cold judgments also. There's a risk. Rav Wolby, in response, our friend, our teacher, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby from Ali Shur, he sharpens this teaching of Maimonides. And his teaching is an excellent segue, excellent segue into our discussion of Rav Dessler's Nikudat HaBechira, the Bechira point. Rav Wolby says, pull up Rav Wolby for you, Rav Wolby says that Rambam isn't saying that today you might be Joe Schmo, and tomorrow, if you really want to, you can become Moses or Jeroboam, or that today, or that today you'll become you'll become them, the most righteous or the most wicked. And then you know that that you can within a day you can totally swing to the other side. If only you will it. He's not saying that according to according to Ravoli. Rambam is not saying if you will it, it is no dream. You can make it happen right now. He's saying. What is Maimonides saying by saying that anybody could be as righteous as Moses or as wicked as Jeroboam? He's saying that today you can decide. Today you can decide to be like Moses or Jeroboam. There's Bechira, there's choice, which we all have the potential to own. And then there's the act or the Midah of being a Bocher, of being someone who makes active choices. When we just go with inertia, we're not being bocher. We're not choosing. We're, we're not deciding anything. This is reminiscent of Viktor Frankl's quote that we mentioned in the past. Everything can be taken from a person, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, and that's to choose, to choose. And in Viktor Frankl's case, to choose one's attitude. So according to Ruby, it's really about, it's about um, Rambam is focusing on one's mindset and one's goals rather than strict behavioral action. It's not simple to go from completely wicked to completely righteous, or even you know, to go from neutral to completely righteous or neutral to completely wicked. It's not, it just can't happen in one day. It doesn't work like that. The process is long and it takes months, years, or a lifetime. But what can happen today is the decision. The decision that today and moving forward, I'm gonna do my best to work towards that goal. You wanna be like Moses, according to, to Ravulbi and, and you know, explaining Rambam, you wanna be like Moses, great. But you're not going to be Moses tomorrow, and our tradition doesn't expect you to. But we do hope. We do hope that you're going to make the decision today that that's where you want to get to eventually. Ravulbi was, was adamant about limiting expansive descriptions of free will. He wrote that the great Jewish philosophers established Bechira, choice, as the cornerstone of the whole Torah. But from this, Ravulbi says, resulted a common misperception among the masses that all people actively choose their every action, every decision. This is a grievous error, Ravulbi says. And uh, the Vilna Gaon, Ravel Yahu, different Ravel Yahu, Ravel Yahu Gaon, he explains that, that there are some things that a person finds impossible to change, right? And that Bechira itself is limited. We don't, it's, 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 we can't do anything we want on any, on any time, in any time frame. Rav Dessler, Ravel Yahu Dessler, speaks very much to this mentality of one step at a time in a process of progressive growth. He gives an example of a smoker. The smoker can't sleep at night because of the constant coughing. And this person very much wants to sleep, who doesn't? But the person also really wants to smoke. The person is addicted after all. In the morning, when they wake up, they commit to smoking just one cigarette. I'm just gonna smoke one cigarette. I'm not gonna quit cold turkey, just a single smoke. But we all know what happens. 
No, you know, not, but not, but you know, we all know what happens that, that, that before the person knows they've smoked a whole pack, right? Certainly more than, more than one cigarette and the coughing returns and the person lies awake at night only to repeat the same dance day after day. It was at that moment, the moment where he said, where this person said, just one more smoke, just one smoke. That's the sense that, that, that is the sense of what was right. That's when what was right and what was wrong came to a head. This person knew that just one smoke would lead them right down, down at, you know, where, where it would lead them, but they acted on this desire anyways. They knew it was wrong. They did it anyways. They knew it was right. They didn't do it. Now, the Rav Dessler gives this example. I don't think we should use it today as science behind addiction as a disease, be it a physical disease or a spiritual disease. It's Rabbi uh, Mark Borovitz describes it, right? That our understanding of addiction has, has developed since Rav Dessler's time. But imagine what would have happened if, at least for that one day, the person did not smoke that one cigarette. That would have been a huge victory, a huge victory. Maybe not for me or some of us here if we're not smokers. So not smoking a cigarette a day is no big deal. But for this person, if they would have conquered that desire to smoke that one cigarette, imagine how encouraging and empowering that might have been. It might have caused some physical pain, withdrawal, which is why the addiction example might not be so perfect. But applying this to other areas of our life, when we know something to be correct, but we wish to do otherwise, and we let our better angel, as it were, win out, that oftentimes brings us to a feeling of accomplishment and control. We're not slaves to our desires. So I would ask you to think about, can you think of any guilty pleasures or, or temptations, no matter how small, that you oftentimes give into that you wish you hadn't? Maybe it's happened once recently, or maybe it's a recurring theme in your life. For some, it's one late night snack, too many. For others, it's an outburst you wish you'd held inside or taken a step outside to cool off. Maybe it's putting off a workout. Maybe it's putting off a workout or a piece of Torah you wanted to learn only to realize that, of course, you wouldn't have time to do it when you said you would, if not now. Or maybe you woke up earlier than planned and knew that if you started messing around on your phone, it would end up sucking you in. And before you know it, it's been an hour and you've lost all that potential sleep. We've all been there. Just want to check the chat here. Ice cream. Yes, I know. I always say, you know, one scoop, you can't stop. It's the sugar. You can't stop. Just one more scoop. And then before I know it, I ate a whole thing at Trader Joe's, uh, par of black cherry ice cream. It's great. Rav Dessler makes this, this point by way of an image of two warring armies. I, I have here a picture of a football team. Two warring armies at the battle line, or if you will, two football teams, each trying to get the ball up the field. Here's how Rav Dessler puts it. Everyone has free choice at the point where truth meets falsehood. In other words, Bahira, choice, takes place at that point where the truth, as the person sees it, confronts the illusion produced in them by the power of falsehood. But the majority of a person's actions are undertaken without any clash between truth and falsehood taking place. Many of a person's actions may happen to coincide with what is objectively right because they've been brought up that way. And it doesn't occur to them to do otherwise. And many bad and false decisions may be taken simply because may may maybe may simply be taken because the person doesn't realize that they are bad, that these are bad decisions. In such cases, this is important. No valid bechira, no valid choice has been made. So let's take a step back. According to Rav Dessler, we all do have free choice, but not all of our choices are equally free at all times or in all situations. We are raised, each of us a bit differently, some more differently than others, 
to know what is true and ethical and what is false and, uneth and unethical. Most of us are raised with a shared understanding of what is what. Be because of our habits, because of our conditioning, when we follow norms as to what is ethical, that's not a free choice. Or Bechira, because Bechira, choice, active choice requires there to be some tension. It requires some tension that we're overcoming. Otherwise, it's just a habit. It's called Harigel, where it's just something we're used to. And a great majority, 95% of our actions, if not 99% of our actions are from Harigel. It's only in the no man's land, the no man's land between truth and falsehood, where I feel the tension, like it's like where the line is in the football field. That's where Bechira is operative. And similarly, and this is a surprising point, many among us have been raised with a false idea, a false idea of what's true and ethical. That is to say, many of us raised by parents in communities, which are human and fallible, were likely raised with some ideas which were not correct. We all know things from experience. We grew up a certain way, either with certain ideas, certain, certain ideals or ways of life. And as we get older, we came to the realization that maybe some of those ideas were not correct. Maybe they were outdated. Maybe that way of life didn't really, you know, fit me the way, I, the way that I thought, you know, that way that I think would be most fulfilling for me. For Rub Dessler, as long as one was trained in a certain way, even if incorrectly, when they follow in the ways of their teachers or parents and community, they are still not considered to be acting freely. This is not to say that there aren't consequences for behaving inappropriately. We'll get to you, Judy. This is not to say that like, you, know, you can just do whatever you want and there aren't consequences. No, there are. Or that you shouldn't receive praise for acting properly, even if it's easy for you to do that. In Rav Dessler's world, there is objectively correct, there's a correct code of behavior. That's the Torah. But it does require us, this Bechira point, to take this person's, this other person's perspective a bit and develop some sensitivity when others misbehave. And when we, quote unquote, behave, to not pat ourselves on the back, not pat ourselves on the back. It might have come easier to behave ethically to us than it did to them by virtue of one's background. I want to see your question here, Judy. How would one know that there's a decision point? What makes one fully informed? So if I understand your question correctly, it's the tension. It's th that, that's how you know, because you feel a tension between doing one thing and doing another. Is, is, that, is that helpful for you, Judy? Or can you, can you flesh your question out for me a bit more? Well, you're saying if, if you do the right thing out of habit, mm -hmm. it is not a true choice. But if you do, and, and if you do the wrong thing out of habit or, or mistaken upbringing, then that is also not a true choice. Mm -hmm. So if you're always doing something that's righteous, you're not at a Bechira point? If, if you, well, I don't think any of us are always doing, you know, righteous things. It's, it's, it's whenever we feel tempted to do one thing which goes against what we feel is right. It's just in any of those moments. That, that's, where the, that's where the test is. That's where, the act, that's where we make an active choice. So there has to be an internal conflict about what to do. Yes. And, 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 to, and to that end, I mean, similarly, for oftentimes, you know, we do things without even thinking about them. One does have to identify the Bechira point if they want to actually make the best of it. If they actually want to make the proper choice, then they have to be aware that there is a conflict there. 
Um, so it does require a bit of, of mindfulness and awareness. Um, I hope that's helpful. So Rav Dessler continues in the spirit. He says, for example, and, and this is, you know, we, we alluded to this earlier. For example, one may have been brought up in an environment of Torah among people who devote themselves to good deeds. In this case, the person's Bechira point will not be whether or not to commit an actual sin, but whether to do a mitzvah with more or less devotion and intention or kavanah. I'll just say that again, that somebody who grew up doing, you know, doing Torah and mitzvot, that their Bechira point is not, am I going to sin? It's how am I going to actually practice these mitzvot in a more advanced way? In a, in a, in, with more intention. Another, it says Rav Dessler, may be, brought, may be brought up among evildoers of the lowest grade, among thieves and robbers. For this person, whether or not to steal does not present any Bechira at all. This person's Bechira point might be on the question of, let's say they go and rob a bank. They go rob a bank. On their way out, they have a Bechira point because they really need that money. They really want that money. That's what they're after. Am I going to shoot? The guard or not? Am I going to shoot my way out to avoid being, you know, be, be to avoid being arrested? That's the Bafira point for this individual person, says Rav Dessler. This is where for, for this person, the forces of truth and untruth are evenly balanced. This is wild. It's wild. It's very wild. It almost sounds super modern. It sounds dangerous, perhaps dangerously relativist. According to what Rav Dessler says here, Bafira meets us where we are. Two people facing the same predicament objectively, who make the same decisions, are judged differently for them. Put that way, it doesn't seem like a great setup for a justice system, but Rav Dessler is saying that two people may never really be in the same predicament, or at least that just because they are both facing the same options or a scenario doesn't mean their decisions are to be identically judged or that they're identically easy or difficult. Someone who grew up keeping kosher would never entertain eating a cheeseburger, let's say. That territory, we talked about the warring armies, that territory of do I have a temptation to eat a cheeseburger, that's already been conquered. That's, that's, that's long gone. That, 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 that territory on the, on the football field, that person's already, you know, the 30-yard line, 50-yard line. They're not, they're not at the beginning there. The Yetzir Hara doesn't stand a chance, doesn't stand a chance at getting this person to eat the cheeseburger, at least not right now. For them, for this kosher person, to not eat a cheeseburger is no big deal. But if someone didn't grow up keeping kosher and decides to eat, say, hamburger, say decides to perhaps eat a cheeseburger without the bacon or hamburgers without the cheese, that non-kosher hamburger without the cheese at the local non-kosher fast food shop, that's a huge decision. That's a huge decision for this person. And their Yetzir Hara poses a real threat and is pushing this person who just started keeping kosher or is thinking about it, eat the cheeseburger, eat the cheeseburger. You know, it's delicious. For this person, that's where the Bechira point is. That's Bechira. And meanwhile, the person who keeps, so, so what's the Bechira point for the person who kept kosher, who keeps kosher? Perhaps that's deciding to eat only grass-fed, organic, properly sourced meat. Actually, I learned the other day, some, there's a, 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 a shochet, a, a slaughterer in Israel who raises his own cows and he actually feeds them cocoa, like cocoa nibs. Apparently, apparently it's very yummy. Apparently it's good for the meat. I don't know. Um, but for this person, right, who keeps kosher, it's not, am I going to eat something that's not kosher? It's maybe how can I be as most ethical as I can in my sourcing of the food that I do eat? Another person who keeps Shabbat may never consider not keeping Shabbat and say maybe they would never consider using their cell phone on, you know, on the Sabbath. But 
one who's just beginning to observe Shabbat, to refrain from using the phone is a big deal for them. That Bechira is to be honored. And so what about the person who, who grew up keeping Shabbat? Maybe for them the challenge is to stay in the moment on Shabbat afternoon when the end of Shabbat is near, to keep sort of with the Shabbat spirit and not think about preparing for after Shabbat. It's just a different, it's a totally different, you know, it's Shabbat for both of them, but their struggles are different. The more the Yetzir, the more the Yetzir HaTov prevails on this, on this battle line against the Yetzir Hara and gains more ground at the Bechira point, the more territory the Yetzir HaTov covers and the more, let's call it hergalized, let's call it routinized, habituated, the more, the more ground this, this Yetzir HaTov covers against the Yetzir Hara, the person becomes more habituated to doing what was before so hard for them to do. And so here's how Rav Dessler puts it. It must be realized that this Bechira point does not remain static in any given individual. With each Bechira successfully carried out, the person rises higher in spiritual level. That is, things that were previously in the line of battle are now in the area controlled by the Yetzir HaTov. Good, clear thinking. Giving into the Yetzir Hara, which the translator here, impulse for immediate gratification, we call it the evil, evil inclination for now, that giving into the Yetzir Hara pushes back the frontier of the good in an act which previously cost one a struggle with one's conscious, conscience will now be done without Bechira at all. So as I mentioned, or prefaced this paragraph really with, every time the Yetzir HaTov or the Yetzir HaRa wins, it encroaches on the other's territory and moves the ball up the field or back, as the case may be, setting up thereby a new Bechira point. Just like in football, the team with possession of the ball can push forward or get pushed back. Practically speaking, when one makes the good decision at the Bechira point, it's easier for them to do that act in the future, that same act. And what will be more difficult will be further afield, as it were. This would be something that had they not gotten to that Bechira point, and this is something to think about, had they not gotten to that Bechira point, doing this particular good action would never have seemed possible. If my Bechira point is at the, say, the 50-yard line, I can never even, you're looking ahead at the 80, 90-yard line, it's too far. I can't even consider those decisions. But the further, the further, you know, the further afield I get, the closer I get to that 90-yard line, the more those actions, which at some point felt impossible, now I actually feel plausible. And I should also preface, or I, should, I guess I should make a note that uh, football is ethically very problematic. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not advocating that people watch the Super Bowl uh, in, our, uh, in our Musar session here. There are many, many dangers of the sport. I'm just using it as an analogy because I think it's probably the best one. I think it works better than soccer. So, okay. Um, as I was saying that every, every single shift, every shift in the Bechira point is, is, is I, would, I would say, is a battle one. It's a battle one, W-O-N. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a victory in a battle as part of a longer term, let's call it a war. You know, we might not like the, the images of like war and violence and conquering. I understand that's not so in these days. This is the language of, of Rav Dessler. But I would say that, that the Bahir point is a battle. The whole field is a war, a good war, a good war that we're enjoying being a part of because we are trying to improve ourselves. And that like this whole field is like moral territory and we're trying to gain as much moral territory as we can. But the conquered territory, the territory that we've already, that our Yetzir HaTov has won, that can be lost at any point. We shouldn't, you know, one can backslide. One can backslide. And for that reason, Rav Dessler says that once one is at a Bechira point and they advance forward, 
they are rewarded for that move, as well as the ongoing maintenance of what used to be the Yetzir Haraz territory. If I didn't grow up keeping kosher or Shabbat, and I'm at a place where I'm doing those things now, even though it's been years, and let's say I would never consider going back, I would still get some reward for those ongoing acts. In this image here, it's very important to look at, I would say, this is the value of the Bechira point, where if you really try to go too far ahead, and Rav Wolby was making this comment, I believe earlier, if you're trying to go too far ahead, it's not going to work. You can't jump up the ladder. The rungs are too, right? You need to actually, sometimes the, the smaller steps will get you there more successfully than a few you know, wide rungs. So what are our most important takeaways here? What do, the, what do these, these teachings leave us? So I would say on our road to self-improvement, to development, we can't skip steps. Fewer rungs on the ladder may be preferable. Prefer, sorry, may, I would say fewer rungs on the ladder may be less preferable to hundreds, right? Or so maybe we would maybe we'd ideally like fewer rungs, right? It just requires a little bit less, you know, less, perhaps less movement to some extent. But those hundred, the hundred rungs, those will be easier to climb than would be jumping from those few rungs, you know, spread out one from the other. So the message here is take things slow. Take things one day at a time. In a similar vein, we need to celebrate the small victories. Each small victory, each small success, each time we make a choice that feels, that feels difficult to make, but ultimately it's the right one, that should be celebrated as a battle won, even if there's, let's say, you know, a longer war that we're a part of. Each, each, each victory needs to be celebrated. I'd say also, we need to be patient with and sensitive towards ourselves and towards others. We all have unique Bechira points, which will depend on our upbringing, our genetics, and more. Meet people where they're at. Understand that what might be super easy and obvious to one person is likely not to another person. If this allows us perhaps to judge less and feel compassion more, that would be something, wouldn't it? Just as the battle between the Yetzir HaTov and the Yetzir HaRa is ongoing and will never really end because we're never going to be perfect. We're not angels. We're not God. So too does our striving for self-improvement continue throughout our lives. It's hard to think that there might not be an end here, that we might become content with our development when in fact there's more room for growth. But the Bechira point tells us to just focus on the small sliver, the small sliver of no man's land that we're facing right now even if there's more work to be done down the road. All of these lessons apply across the board in all of our midah work, in our cheshbon hanefesh, in our soul accounting. When we find ourselves in a Bahira moment where the truth and the falsehood are up against each other and we have to make a choice, it might be helpful to perhaps recite a mantra of sorts or a Kabbalah related to the midah being tested. Alternatively, breathing and meditating briefly could help. When we face Bechira moments, regardless of how we ultimately act, we should take note, take note of, of what the situation was. How did we act? Why did we act the way that we did? If we made the right choice, you know, one could journal this, one could write in a journal. If we made a choice that we feel comfortable with, how did I do it? How can I learn for the future? And if I made a choice that I didn't really, I'm not so proud of, what was driving me? Was it fear? What, what was going on here? In Musar, these practices and more are meant to keep us conscious of our Musar work and accountable. And so Judy, this goes to, I believe your question, right? This, we have to be aware of what's happening and keeping track. Otherwise, otherwise we're not really doing the work. So I would say that let's pick one Midah that we've learned about. Let's pick one Midah that we've learned about and identify 
one Bechira point related to that Midah. For example, for me, when it comes to Kavod, honor, sometimes I'm tempted to be like a child and not ask my parents how they're doing. Parents ask their children how they're doing. How was school? Did what you learned today? But I know that that's not true. I'm an adult. I should be asking them. It's a small thing. And it's not the greatest sign of honor. It's a small thing. But when I do that, I feel like I'm making a Bechira. I'm making a choice for zrizut, for alacrity, for enthusiasm. I'm not quite at a place where I practice everything enthusiastically. Sometimes I'm on the lower rung uh, and I just need to be more responsive to some, some emails. I could be more excited to respond to them, but I'm not there yet. I need to get the doing done first. I need to first respond to the emails before changing my attitude towards them. And for those who are already good at responding to emails, be on top of their email, be on top of returning calls, et cetera, that's great. Their next step in the Bahira ladder might be to focus on the attitude part, to do it with a bit more enthusiasm. I'd love to hear uh, what you all have as Bahira points. I want to hear about a past Bahira point, perhaps, that you feel proud of, that you overcame. And now it's almost become hair gel. It's become a habit, in a sense. It's conquered territory. I, I, want to, I would like to hear that. And, and uh, if you have one in mind, perhaps one that you're facing right now, head on. And then after we do that for, I would say, you know, for, for a number of minutes, then I want us to, to sort of gather, gather together and just, just sort of reflect on the last 10 weeks that we spent together. Uh, but before doing that, I want to, uh, to ask you, right, what, are, what, what is, your, what is a Bechir point that you've already passed, that you've done so successfully, whether it's with Hit Lamdut, of learning, of Anava, humility, Hakaratov, gratitude, Zrizut, Chesed, kindness, Zahabanut, patience, Seder, order, Bitachon, trust. These are all the midot that we've covered and we've done, we've done quite a bit. So let me, um, let me pause there and ask, what is some territory that you've, that you've sort of won out where your Yetzir HaTov, your good inclination has won out. And if you're currently facing Bechir point with one of these midot, where, where, where is that? I'll share. Um, so, you know, it really resonated with me when you said that, you know, it's different for every person, you know, because um, I remember, um, you know, years ago, like for Yom Kippur, and, and we would ask God for forgiveness for the sins and the thou shalt not. And I'm thinking like, well, I don't murder. I don't, you know, all these, all these different commandments, like, I don't do that stuff. So it took me a while to realize that I have my own stuff that I need to deal with. Um, but one thing that happened um, years ago, and it, 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 it was minor probably for most people, but for me, it was not. And I, it, it kind of changed the way I looked at things, listening to my inner voice. So when I was in college, I um, had a boyfriend and we went, I went to University of Arizona in Tucson and we went to visit his sister and her husband in Phoenix. And so we stayed there, you know, for one or two nights or whatever, went back to college. I mean, went back to Tucson and I'm thinking, you know, I need to write a thank you note. You know, it's the right thing to do. I got to write a thank you note. And time just kept passing and I didn't write it. And I thought, I'll never see her again. You know, it doesn't matter. Well, <laughs> went to know that I moved to Phoenix and I became involved in the Jewish community and she was very involved in the Jewish community. 
and she solicited me for a pledge for the Federation. <laughs> and so one of the first things I said to her was, you know, I, I just said, you know, I, I feel so bad. I should have sent you a note and I didn't. And that kind of made me realize that if I have attention about something, God's the one, you know, God's going to kick me in the butt. If I don't do something that I know I should, then um, God will kick me in the butt. And so now I know that if I'm thinking, should I or shouldn't I, I just do it. <laughs> Great, thank you, Randy. And 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 I and I, want, and I want to just add before others uh, others also share that this can be small things. Like I know you know one of you wrote ice cream, like right, I'm tempted to eat ice cream. And like one of the things we should know from our musar already is that like small things, everything builds up um, from the smallest to the to the to the biggest. You know, not everything, um, right, is is a life trend. You know, is a transformative, uh, uh, you know, bechira point. Um, so, but I so I just I want people to feel comfortable to share. Um, but Randy, thank you so much for for kicking us off. Um, others, others can share either a Bechira point they're facing now or Bechira point that they've, uh, that they feel like I've, I've overcome. Yeah, Lauren, go ahead. For me, equanimity is really, really hard. You know, it's like kind of getting there, then the Gaza war started, then I see all this anti-Semitism and it triggers me and it's hard to stay calm and it's hard to do like the whole universal, you know, I am the raindrop and I am the ocean. Yeah, I can believe it maybe in my mind, sort of, but I completely lose it when, when things fall apart. And is, is there a moment there where, where you feel like, you know, a small action on your part might change the tide or you might, you know, is, is there a moment that you can, that you can identify? I, I really, to change the behavior point, I really, really try and meditate, use mantras about, you know, equanimity and we're all in it. But all I need is watch the news and see one more bashing of Israel or one more gratuitous uh, bit of Jew hatred. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor. So I think that um, it's a trigger for me. Yeah. And I tend to be very, I tend to go back to being very tribal, which is not what we're aiming for, right? But um, it's really easy for me to backslide into that. Mm. Well, it's important to, to notice that. Yeah. And I, and I think part of what we're trying to do with the bigger point as well is to, to be able to perhaps even detect what is it, like what are those moments perhaps physiologically where we feel like we're starting to get worked up? Um, and is there a way uh, for us to address that? Yeah, please, we'd love to hear from others. Thank you, Lauren. I used to be kind of a slob. Um, in I didn't make my bed. I didn't. Uh, I I didn't drop things on the floor, but I left a lot of clutter around, and um, it took me a while living with a, a neat person and uh, wanting my marriage to work, I learned how to become more orderly and to discard things and not pretend to myself that uh, I was going to read that year old magazine. So I feel like I've conquered that. I, I, I struggle with kindness. I, I generally see the best in people, 
but um, it's very hard for me when people are doing really destructive things. I, I, I struggle a lot on not being able to talk about that or not being able to think. Um, I have to work at being kind in, in understanding why people won't get vaccines, uh, why, uh, why people engage in large picker, picture destructive behavior. So that's, that's, a, that's a lifelong thing, I think. To your point about um, being variably messy, I had a roommate one time say, like your space is a reflection of how your mind feels. And I can never ever unhear that. So um, I think that's fair. And I, I work on that too, because I live alone. And so there's really only me and no level of accountability, but I recognize that on busy weeks. I struggle with asking for help. So I'm not good at it. And I'm also the person that a lot of people turn to. And in college, in our group, there was something where someone was struggling more than I, and I turned to a friend, and I was like, well, why would I bring all of my struggles to everyone? Because she's struggling more, right? The support and the prayer should go to her. And he's like, that's not how friendship or prayers or support works. You should give people the same openness and honesty and ability to support you that, that you give to them, right? And, and, the, and what you get back from that is invaluable. So you need to allow people that moment. And it's still something that, you know, over 10 years later, I still, um, I struggle with it. I struggle with letting people in and seeing me as honestly and openly as I see them. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Judy. Uh, hi, I, um, we talked about order. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, so, Funnily enough, I have been like taking a half an hour each day to work on a little something and, and make a little headway. So I think I'm in the midst of my Bihira Nakudo. So, or did I have them reversed? But anyway, um, so that's where I'm at right now. It's so thank you for bringing that up and, <laughs> and, and prompting me a bit. So. I had uh, somebody a long time ago talking about this, that um, if you're faced with this struggle between something you want to do, that it's comfortable and easy, and if it's really something that you don't want to do, but you know it's the right thing to do, you should do the hard thing. So, so I'm working on the hard thing for me. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, Huda. I I, 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 empathize. I sympathize with the with the seder, with the order, um, the chira. I feel like for me, sometimes it's when I get home. Where am I going to put my jacket? Am I going to my my you know my socks? Am I going to put them on the floor? Am I going to put them in the hamper? Like that's a bechira point. Right? I'm making an active choice, and that's not going to clean up my whole entire room. But that's you know one step. One step. That's that's a bechira. That's a bechira. Yeah. Please. What one. Um... One Bahira point that I've been I've been practicing on thrusting upon myself each day has been I have on my daily agenda to try to do three acts of kindness that day that I would not normally do. And I normally fail. Um, it's very easy to be like, oh, I'm a good person. Uh, two weeks ago, I donated some money or last week I volunteered or this morning I held the door. 
But then I sit there looking at the sheet and I'm like, how am I going to do these three acts of kindness? And I push myself into these, into this moment of choice of like how I'm going to structure my day and find it. And it takes intellectual creativity. It takes kind of searching. Sometimes it's super easy. Sometimes it's hard, but most days I fail at like doing, doing a true act of chesed. So, but, but, but it's very much like part of my avoda right now. Thank you, Rishmuli. Is there, can I ask, is there a reason why you do one? Why, why, why three acts? Why not two? Why not one? That's a good uh, question. And the reason I chose three was because chazakah, that if we do uh, the idea that if you do something three times, it habituates you. Um, and so I feel like if I do one, it doesn't change me. Maybe it'll do something for someone on maybe uh, someone else, maybe not. But if I can do three, some way it'll change me that day, maybe. Interesting, right. It change, it, it's, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. I also think the chazakah can be three days in a row, perhaps uh, the, the uh, creates, creates this... Uh, you know, this tendency. Uh, thank you, Rav Shmuley. Even the rabbis struggle with Bechira. See, we all struggle. I, I think Rav Shmuley doesn't give himself enough credit. I, I think that the act of taking in a foster child, for example, is a continuing act of chesed, and you shouldn't demerit it. Oh, well, well, first of all, Judy, you're very kind. But in my framework here, once I've taken the foster kid in, it's beyond my Bahira point. It's now a part of my life. I now need to move the Bahira point forward to challenge myself to do something that I'm not currently doing. And it's not, it, right? So, so, that, so, so that's how I'm operating in, the, in this framework. Um, but thank you. Thank you for your kind word. I, anybody who's raised a child knows that that is patently untrue and that every day you have to choose to be a good parent. I think we know who's going to be leading our next Musar series. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Rav Shmuley. Wow. Okay, folks. Well, we have about seven minutes left in our, in our time together. I know we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot of Midot, a lot of Torah. I've given you, you know, I've tried to give you what I have um, and to, you know, give it over to you. And I've tried to Make it, you know, real concrete Torah, um, concrete and practical and deep and meaningful and applicable with whether you have a ton of Torah knowledge or not a lot of Torah knowledge. I would love to hear from you in the next, you know, seven minutes or so. If you're new to today, you're also invited to share. Um, if you guys have any reflections, perhaps, you know, one, two minutes each, um, any reflections on the past, you know, 10 weeks, what you're taking away from the last 10 weeks that we've been together what you're taking away, perhaps what you're looking forward to. I'd love to, I'd love to hear. I'll go. <laughs> I tend to go first all the time. So why not stop that? Why, why stop it now? Um, I, I've been wanting to learn about Musar for, for years. And so when this opportunity came up, I grabbed it, so thank you. I do have a question. When I Googled Musar, it seems like there are more than 10. They're like 18 Mido. Is that true? And oh, they're unlimited. There's so many Mido. We just choose to, we just chose 10. Okay. I was I because I thought there was I didn't know if there was a limited number or does it go on and on and on? Or and how did you choose the 10 to cover in class? Great question. Um, so these are some of the common ones that, that, that have been written about, both in Hebrew and in English. I think there's some of the foundational ones. Um, I think they're ones that cover multiple 
sort of disciplines or multi, you know, there's just a lot of interaction between them. I could have chosen others. Uh, if we decided to have a 40 week series, then there would have been, uh, that would have been, that would have been a lot of, a lot of things to prepare. Um, but yeah, these were just 10 that, that I felt like were, were manageable, were relatable. Um, I think choosing Bitachon, that was, that was a risk in some ways. You know, I think going theological in pluralistic environments is, is not always a safe move. Um, God, right? We didn't talk about, I mean, we talked about God, like, you know, conceptually, but in terms of trusting in God, that was something we did last week. That was something that a lot of times people will talk about at the end, because it's sort of hard to, you know, it's not, not everybody buys in, in the same way. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a choice. Uh, it was a choice that I made. Um, and, and I, of course, I welcome you to keep studying and all the other Midot and the ones that you feel like you need to work on. Um, had we taken a survey before of, you know, different Midot that we feel like we need to work on, perhaps we would have gone a different direction. But, you know, we've done a 10-week taste, 10 hours, 10 hours of Musar study. Thank you, Randy. What, what, are, what are folks taking away? What are you looking forward to? I, um, I previously took the IGN, the Strategic Jewish Spirituality Musar class, which was also very good in a different approach. Um, I like your approach because it was very Torah-oriented, which kind of fits my own orientation. And, and you touched upon some different methods than they did. So um, I thank you for it. I really liked it, and I hope you come back with a, another series of new dots for us to work on. You, you make it very, um, you make it fun, kind of, in the way you teach, and uh, very practical. So I really, really appreciate it, Rabbi Lauren. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And this doesn't only have to be about you know praise for the class. It can also be you know uh, you know sort of reflections on on you know, what you're, again, what you're taking away, what you've learned, what you've struggled with perhaps, and, um, and how, how you think you might chart, chart forward. Sometimes saying it out loud uh, can make it a reality. Uh, so much of Jewish knowledge, you end up feeling like, I don't know enough to understand the context. And how do I gain the knowledge to gain the context? If so, it's, it's like a giant mountain you have to move and I, I appreciate that uh, you told us that baby steps are sufficient to get started because otherwise it can be so daunting. Right, right. It's like you look up at the mountain and it just, uh, it's, it's so far, it's so high. How do you get there? So Rabbi Lauren, before I conclude us, do you want to offer any closing remark? Yeah. Um, I've, I've really, I've personally very much enjoyed uh, these last 10 weeks. It's required a lot of, of preparation and introspection on my part. Sometimes it can be very difficult to teach about concepts that, you know, one oneself isn't completely fluent or, or perfect in. That's part of the, it's part of the work. Um, but I want to thank you all for, for being here and for, for learning together, for being open to a session, which, you know, we could have. We could have, well, first of all, given that we're here for the, also the, the podcast, you know, is also here. This is an interesting model where we're like both together and there's also somewhat perhaps of like a disconnect. Um, but I, I appreciate that everyone came here ready to study Torah. Like we studied Musar, but we also studied Torah. And sometimes uh, that, that's not always the case in all different, uh, you know, Musar studies. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful that you allowed me to bring in what I sort of enjoy, which is deep Torah study. Um, you know, into the Musar. 
Um, and I welcome you to reach out to me. You're welcome to please be in touch. So all these documents, this PowerPoint I put together here, it's, it's yours. You know, you're welcome to, to, to have it. It's uh, almost 200 slides now. Um, the recordings are all there. And, um, and yeah, thank you all just for being here and for being vulnerable. And I hope that, you know, whichever me dote you work on, however you work on them, that you keep in mind, right? That where you are is okay, that where you are is good. And we are always, you know, striving to be better. And, you know, if we can just take, you know, small chunks um, in like a thoughtful way, I think it's those, those small victories um, that can really help us feel fulfilled. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Just, uh, just a few closing remarks. Firstly, I want to thank the participants because I'm always told that what people want is fun Judaism, happy Judaism, feel good Judaism. Um, we want our kids to love it. And I want to feel welcomed and I want to feel included and I want entertainment. I want to, I want it just to uplift me. Right. And actually like Musar is the opposite. Musar is, the, is going to the uncomfortable place, doing the work. Of course, Rabbi Lohan makes it fun uh, and accessible and inclusive and all that, all that good stuff. But, but it, it, it tells me that people are willing to have Judaism, which is about work, not just the Judaism, which is about play. Um, I, 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 Judaism for adults, not just the Judaism for children. The fact that you all showed up consistently, because I think the point of this is to be uncomfortable. It's like exercise. You don't get on an exercise bike to feel good, right? Uh, you, you, do it, you do it for the burn um, to do the hard work. So, so I thank you all for that. And that's part of what VBM is, is not to make people just feel um, happy, right? If you want, self-help books oftentimes have that pursuit. And Musar is a little bit different. Yes, there is the Midav Simcha. We have to cultivate the joy, but also we have to do the work that makes us uncomfortable and feel alienated from ourselves and from others. And, uh, and that's part of our growth. Um, so that's the first thing. The second, I want to thank Pam, as always, for, for managing this, um, you know, top and bottom. She's been a great addition to our team. Um, and thank Rabbi Lauren Berman, who's just been, um, has prepared so much to pull this together. Sources, a lot of sources, a lot of content, time with us, and the difficulty of talking to 10 people in the room and 2,000 on the podcast. You know, um, in the collective thousands that will access this through recording who don't want to be in the room but want to listen, it's hard to do that, to talk to a broad audience and a specific audience. Um, and he did it. He did it very well. So, friends, we hope you'll continue journey, journeying with us and learning with us, in particular on Monday with Rabbi Dr. Kerry Olitsky on The Old Man Kohelet, his life on review, and in many other uh, classes and panels uh, we have coming up. Thank you all. And once again, have a great day. Please do send us feedback, as always, of what more you want and what less you want. Thank God bless you. you all. Much. Many blessings in our journey, in our journey to keep, keep growing and learning.